everybody, and welcome to Therefore I Geek. I'm Tracy, and Dude is currently drinking some kind of a protein shake. No, no, it's iced tea. It's iced tea, uh, I swear. Oh, it's iced tea. Okay. So, yeah, so I'm Tracy, that's Dude, and we're talking about George Orwell, the man, the myth, the legend, who wasn't even named that, apparently, at the beginning. No. So, yeah, so... Dude, since you're our resident expert, why don't you take us through this guy's early life and um, give us his real name? So everyone knows the name George Orwell, even if they haven't read the books. But the man was actually born under a different name. His name was Eric Arthur Blair. And he was born uh, June 25th, 1903 in Motihari, Bihar, India. His father was a civil servant in the British Empire and served in British India and was part of the opium department. So he was quite literally part of the department that moved opium drugs from British India into China. And as people have described it, it was the war for drugs rather than the war against drugs uh, at that time. Yeah, so... That's always interesting to me because so I watched Boardwalk Empire and that kind of got me interested in the early idea of drugs in America, which is similar. And it's crazy to me how our we've come and I think Orwell would be critical of the way that we've changed how we see drugs and how we see drug users. Sure. I mean, and this was a, I mean, his father's profession. He loved his mom. His father's name was Richard Blair. And his mom's name was Ida. And he he had a immense sense of guilt about his father's occupation. Oh, almost of the throughout colonialism? His, yeah, almost all throughout his entire life. Uh, he idolized his mom. He always loved his mom. He had two sisters. He loved them very much. Uh, but his dad was always kind of this crusty t- British tough guy, l- uh, lived most of his life out of of the United Kingdom and lived in the empire most of the time until he retired. And this was allowed Oral to be brought up in what he describes as the lower upper middle class. Mm-hmm. And, and for his entire life, this is an intense uh, source of guilt for him. And it's one of the seeds that gets planted for his, his anti-colonialism that will appear in his writing in the 30s. So he lives a life of what current social engineers would call privilege. He went to a boys' yeah. school. He absolutely, and he, and he knew this, and he would write about it. He went to a boys' school. It was called St. Cyprian's. And and this was in India? No. He comes to Europe, and he's about five or something like that. Fairly fairly young. So he has no real living memory of India. Okay. I mean, he has no, no mem- childhood memory of India. Um, he basically starts St. Cyprian's... Uh, in 1912 so he's he's eight or nine at the time and if you want to kind of get a crystallized feel of what that was like his essay such such were the joys and it's an ironic title because if you read the essay and it's a fairly long essay narrative essay it's a horrible experience for him i've heard most of these prep schools really were yeah and there was a such such were the joys was never published in his lifetime partially because it was considered too scandalous. Uh, When it was published after his death, people kind of dismissed it, saying that, uh, no, this this couldn't have been really the case. He's kind of exaggerating. 
uh, and when biographers went back and talked to some of his classmates at St. Cyprian's, a lot of them confirmed that, yeah, the headmaster and headmistress were really brutal, both of them Scottish. And this is so, kind of where Orwell starts to get his first sense of, of disliking authority that will, will start to, come, again, come into play later in his writings in the 30s and 40s. So when you say it, it would be scandalous, what, are, what do you mean scandalous? He would be beaten. Um, he, he wet the bed and the headmistress would send him to the headmaster for whoopings. The headmistress, he had a kind of dark, twisted nickname for her. I think it was like Samo or Sambo or something like that. And he talks a lot in the essay about how they just pour on guilt onto him. Things like, you know, look at all the things we're doing for you. And you're, you're this ungrateful, terrible little boy. Mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that. And it was it was one of those things where he was just so scathing towards particularly those two teachers, the head, the headmaster and the headmistress, that you know, people just, you know, how could these people be so bad and, and mistreat boys under their care, especially so many of them who would be sent on to Eton and, and great to such great, uh, I guess, finishing schools or, or finishing, you know, like, schools or whatever. Yeah, boys, but like to, to kind of like prestige and great careers sure. based on that. So, St. Cyprian, was this a Catholic school or was that just sort of? I, it might have had some religious to it. I can't remember if it had any kind of religious training to it. But um, no, for the most part, it was just kind of a boys school, like a boys. Like that was what a, it was called a public school in England at the time. And was he boarding there, or was this just his day school? No, he was living there. Oh wow, he was living there. So, so he he didn't see his family very much when he was. Why young. did here just since you've done so much reading on him? What is your personal opinion about why he took the guilt of his father's vocation so much to heart? Well, if that he comes wasn't around them. It comes later in life, right? So he knows what his father does, but that sense of guilt about his father's colonial past really comes ahead to a head when he goes to the Burmese police, which we haven't quite gotten to yet. That's where it's sure. That's where it for, I think first crystallizes in his mind because he's there for five years. Okay. And, and Burma I think was that, also a colony. Burma was part of British India at the yes. time. Okay. So what we understand is modern day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar and Myanmar at the time was all British India. Okay. But, but after St. Cyprian's, he goes to a school called Eton Boarding School. And that's also kind of a prep school for going to the big colleges, the Oxfords of the time. And he enjoys Eton a lot more than he enjoys St. Cyprian's. He's also a little uh, older at this point, too. So he's a yeah, little he's more a mature. teenager. Perhaps yeah, he's he can a teenager. handle the, the yes. bullying and such. Well, he kind of like... He gets into a groove. He's he's one of the the smarter kids because there's two types of kids that you could be at schools like Eton because it's again these kind of elite of elite schools, and there were Oppidans and Collegers. And Oppidans were boys who got into the school based on how wealthy their parents were. Mm -hmm. And Orwell was one of the kids who got into the school because he was actually very intelligent. Now his parents again weren't super rich but again they were he they had money saved up and they were sending him to this school so that he could 
have these high-level careers. And that was actually another source of guilt that the headmistress from St. Cyprian's would lay on him is because he was kind of there on a scholarship. So they would hit him with this, you know, we're making all these sacrifices. You know, we're not collecting the full fee from your parents. You know, you should be grateful for just even being here. And that, and wow. that weighed on him fairly heavily. Wow. And, and Eaton, he didn't have that problem. He enjoyed it much more. Some of his teachers, I mean, one of them was Aldous Huxley at the time. It was his French teacher. No kidding. Uh, yeah. But one of his teachers kind of, well, I mean, kind of got annoyed with Orwell because Orwell was a voracious reader, but he just wouldn't read what's in the syllabus. Right? He would just kind of do his own thing. That sounds like me when I was a teenager. Yeah. So after Eaton school, he didn't go on to college. No. So this is what's really interesting about him. And this is the first moment in Orwell's life where you see him just make he'll do this throughout the course of his life is he'll make these decisions that will make him uncomfortable and almost like purposefully suffer where he has an easy road in front of him like this. Again, he, he's born into this kind of life of privilege and he purposefully chooses not to take it. So one of the first big mysteries we run across with Orwell is after Eaton in 1921. He's, he's there from like 1917 to 1921. He opts not to go to Cambridge or Oxford. And there was a lot of discussion at the time during his life and soon after that, well, he didn't have the grades to go to Oxford or Cambridge. And um, his, one of his biographers, uh, Jeffrey Myron, has said in uh, the one his biography that he it's it's actually kind of true it's it's not true he did have the the grades to go he opted not to hmm. the exact reason why is still kind of a mystery and part of the reason is that you know he may have been trying to follow the family tradition you know still not knowing exactly how dark colonialism was he had uh, grandparents had like a teakwood business in Burma. Maybe he was seeking adventure. It could have been all these things, but he decides to enlist in the Burmese police force, in the in the British Imperial Indian Police, and in and specifically Burma. So this is something that sounds weird to an American living in 2017, but he wasn't enrolling with the Burmese. Actually, he wasn't going to a foreign country. He was enrolling with a bunch of other British. Yeah, the colonial police. Mm-hmm. The clone, it was the British, the overlords of British India had a police force. It was the uh, Imperial Police. But and he was there for it, five years. That's a long time. There for time. five years. Not really. I mean, that, that's actually the interesting. It's five, it's five years a long time, yes, but it's actually not a long time to be a Burmese cop. Because 14 of those months he's in training. And by the fifth year he's there, he doesn't want to be there anymore, and he resigns. Yeah. And the people that were his superiors were really hesitant to let him go. Because they put all this time in training him, and you're usually there like close to it. Again, his father spent more time in India than he did in Britain. So five years is a long time to us, but was kind of short for a cop, for someone to be in the colonial police force. But you were sitting here saying like, oh, it's weird for an American in 2017 to, for him to make that decision. It was weird for him in 1921 to make that decision. His family was actually fairly annoyed that he wasn't going to Cambridge or Oxford. He was they also had, pretty young. That's only 18 years old. Right. But they had, keep in mind, they had dumped a ton of coin on him going to these very elite prep schools with the 
full intent of him becoming a successful professor, teacher, businessman, something gotcha. after coming out of Oxford, it, it getting into that connected world. And then when he goes to, into Burma, they're like, uh, okay, maybe you'll make something of yourself like your dad did. But they were hoping that he would have done more shot higher than that. Sure. Well, now he's in Burma throughout the Roaring Twenties. Yep. Does he make any mention of the collapse of, does that impact him in any way? Or was he so far out of the mainstream that he didn't notice? The collapse, the economic collapse? Yes. That'll come after he gets out of Burma. Okay. So while in Burma, while, again, that kind of roaring 20s, he's, you, you have the British Empire at its, you know, height, but also he sees its decay from the inside. And this is where, you know, it first hits him how just dark colonialism and immoral colonialism and how awful the British Empire really is. This is where he starts to lose the facade, that kind of white man's burden just disappears, you know, and, and even though he was a fan of Kipling, he just could not believe that British people thought in this, just their arrogance, they could control an entire population. And it took him a while to deal with that because he writes um, two major essays on the topic. He mentions it every now again and again, but the two major essays he writes about being in Burma is shooting an elephant and a hanging. Um, those are his, his essays he writes, those in the 30s. And then he has a, a, a fiction novel called Burmese Days, which is kind of based on him. And that's kind of his first big moral stance is this anti-colonialism, this, you know, anti-controlling of other people. And this is about the time that he ends up growing a Hitler stash. Can you <laughs> give me any insight into why he would choose such a thing? Well, remember, Hitler hadn't shown up yet, so he, <laughs> yes, he hadn't. Yeah, he, <laughs> he hadn't shown up yet, and there's actually a good photo in Jeffrey Myron's biography on him of what he looked like at, as they were training him, and he actually had it was actually fairly clean shaven, but he was also like abnormally tall. He um, looks very gangly. Yeah, he was. He was incredibly awkward, really gangly. He was a tall dude. I think he was like I can't remember exact his exact height, but he was like six two. Which, especially for that time, was pretty yeah. tall. I've seen the uniforms of World War One soldiers. They were pretty tiny people yeah. as a whole. So I can imagine. And that also is probably a portion of why he was bullied so hard mm -hmm. when he was or, Yeah, when well. he was young. When he got older, that, that bullying stopped because he got, he got big. Well, usually if you can actually, like, double fist the top of someone's head, you know, just sort of rail spike them or whatever the term is, mm -hmm. from, from above, they usually tend to leave you alone. Yeah. And what's what's interesting is that what as inexplicable as him going to Burma kind of was to a lot of people, his leaving is also never fully explained. He doesn't really give much of an explanation. Jeffrey Myron kind of gives a few explanations in his he speculates in the biography of why he might have left, but partly because of his health mm -hmm. uh, or well throughout his entire life is going to have uh, respiration problems. As early as being a baby, in his mom's diary, there's discussion of him having breathing problems. So he and, perhaps had some kind of allergies or perhaps asthma. And yeah. then, of course, later on, he gets the disease that eventually kills him, tuberculosis. This is right. while he's in Burma, correct? Or is it after he comes back to the U.S.? Or is that murky? Well, he never or comes not to the U.S. US. I'm sorry, U.K. It's, he's diagnosed with it when he comes to the U.K., 
but he he gets like chronic bronchitis fairly often as a young man and, and as a child and he starts to have a lot of problems with his health in Burma he has a lot of problems with his superiors in Burma they're kind of these you know tough guys who have no no time for an Eaton kid like why is this Eaton kid even here sure they, that they makes give sense. him a they give him a hard time about that. And also, uh, Christopher Hitchens speculated in his book, um, Why Orwell Matters, and in a lot of his speeches, that Orwell left because he felt being an imperial cop was turning him into a sadist. You know, Orwell did have a mean streak in him, and he's described as kicking and beating Burmese in a hanging. He is a participant in someone's execution. And in, in in a hanging, he just talks about how awful this made him feel in shooting an, an elephant. The opening line is very arresting. It's something along the lines of in Burma, I was hated by a very large group of people. The first time in my life I had ever been so important for that to happen to me or something to that effect. And he talks, especially in shooting elephant, how he just didn't want to shoot this elephant. But he's got this gun. And he's going to go grab, you know, go shoot this elephant. But. There's this crowd of Burmese all watching him, and he's got to be the he's the big tough imperial police officer, so he's got to do this. And that's when he starts to realize that colonialism not only is awful, most awful to the oppressed, but the it's also corrupting the British, who have to be these tyrants and sadists to keep that population under control. So I think after five years, he had had his fill with that. Sure. Well, and here's a good question that I would postulate to him if he were sitting here with us having this conversation. Is it possible that colonialism doesn't necessarily turn every Britisher or every colonist into a sadist, but actually only attracts those who have a natural inclination to it? I mean, that's possible. He would he'd probably go along with that to a point. But he, he also saved a good deal of criticism for those type, like the Kipling types, that would defend the empire as on a moral ground. And, and he had just no patience for that. He just, he did not see the morale, like how one could make a moral claim that the empire was helping these people. He just couldn't stomach. He had, he had just little patience for that in his writing. I see. So he arrives back in the UK. He comes back to London mm -hmm. in... South Falk is where he was from. I see. Yeah, oh, so he's going He's going straight back home. He goes home. In yeah, 1927. And then yes. what does he do? Well, so he makes another really strange decision. He's not sure what he wants to do. He's at home for a while, and his, and his family is not happy that he's there, because they're like, what are you going to do? And he kind of moves in with one of his sisters that kind of help him out. But, you know, he's so used to being the like the big dog that he he kind of has this air of superiority to him because he used to be a cop in Burma. So he's still expecting servants to take care of him. But there's no servants in the house because his family wasn't nearly that well off. Or, um, not, I think it was South Fold is where, where it was, not South Falk, but South Fold. But he makes this another really strange decision. And again, he puts himself in kind of harm's way Is he purposely becomes homeless and he wants to he really wants to be a writer but he purposely becomes homeless 
and he chronicles the whole thing in in the nonfiction in his first book, nonfiction uh, novel, uh, or I shouldn't say nonfiction novel, nonfiction book, down and out in London and Paris. And it starts off in in Paris, where he's in Paris, and he loses his job, and he lo he's teaching English to French kids, and he loses his tutoring job, and he meets up with this World War One Russian veteran, and they're trying to find work, so he winds up writing weird articles for communist newspapers that they don't even care if he plagiarizes them from British newspapers. Really strange stuff. But he does it for six years. And he's all he does all kinds of strange things from washing dishes to picking crops. You know, if you were just going to write a book about this, maybe you do it for a year, maybe 18 months. He's homeless for like six years after he comes back from Burma. And this whole time, he's still, he hasn't come up with a pseudonym yet. So he's still Eric Blair. No, he's still Eric Blair. He's still Eric Blair. He's, he starts writing as like his first essay, I think. His first essay is in a French publication in 1929, but he's still Eric Blair. He picks up the moniker George Orwell in 1933 when Down and Out in London and Paris is released. And Down and Out in London and Paris is very much this firsthand account of what it's like living as a homeless person, as a tramp in London, in Paris, and he meets all these just strange immigrants and revolutionaries and prostitutes and dishwasher people. And he just tries to tell their story. So he doesn't spend a whole time, a whole lot of time in a scathing review of how the upper class t treats him. He's really talking to the indigents and telling their story. So he wants to tell their story. Now, he'll he'll save his ire for the upper class in, in a later book called Road to Wigan Pier, where he basically does the same thing a couple of years. It comes comes out a couple of years later in 35. But in that time, what he'll do is he will take up what it's like being a working class or unemployed person in Britain. So he's not he's kind of leaves the being a homeless person uh, behind after. Uh, down and out in London, Paris. He's taken on the name George Orwell. Book isn't that huge of a hit. Um, he gets the name, and, and I got I have conflicting stories of where he gets George from. It's either King George at the time, or the patron saint, Saint George. It can totally be both because I believe be King George got his name from the patron saint. So yeah, so it's like, but people have had different stories, and then Orwell comes from the river. There's the River Orwell in uh, Suffolk County. That's where basically it comes from. And you were asking earlier, like, what was this other name he had? It was H. Lawrence Always. And uh, that's a terrible that, name. I'm glad it was you a bad name. That. Yeah. yeah, he didn't. He didn't want the name Blair because again, he he at, by the point after by, by that point after he had come back from being a bum for six years, he didn't really want that aristocratic upper middle class name. And Eric apparently was a f also the name of like a fairly popular children's book that, you know, since been forgotten, but he didn't want to be associated with that. So he went with George Orwell. You know, he kind of wanted to be kind of master of his own destiny. And that's basically how he would be known for the rest of his life on that one. So sometime between 1933, when he publishes Down and Out, mm -hmm. and 1935, he meets a girl. 
Yeah, he meets a woman named uh, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, who basically every biographer and documentary that I've seen or read has said she was just this wonderful woman. Very intelligent, very nice. She was going for a master's degree. She never actually finishes it. It was in some, I think it was like in children's development or something. And he didn't have the money to like really marry her at the time. And again, because he's like poor, he's like super, super poor because he's like he's out of the house. His family's not taking care of him. His sister's not taking care of him. He's just not supporting himself very well. And there's no way he was going to be able to support a wife um, in between that time, 33 and 35. He goes through the process of doing the research for Road to Wigan Pier, where he lives the life, well, not really lives the life, but basically documents the life of coal miners, the unemployed, the travelers, and then spends half the book trying to come up with solutions and then tearing into the kind of the upper class Marxist types who think they have a solution. And that's kind of his first minor hit. And also where I think you start to see at least literarily the first seeds of 1984 if if early if if such such were the joys he probably wrote that in the 40s but if his life experiences are starting to set that groundwork that anti-tyranny anti-authoritarian type streak that he had in him the first kind of appearances of show up in in road to wigan pier specifically with his description of the working class in england you see that a similar description reappear in 1984. He really draws, I think, heavily from this book while he's writing 1984 to get get you the flavor of London in that book. When, when he wants to describe the working class in 1984 in that world, I think he's borrowing heavily from here, from everywhere, from the way they talk to the way they have recreation to the way they look. It, they're almost not they're not he's not plagiarizing himself. He's not lifting whole passages and cutting and paste, but they're similar enough that you can see the connection. Yeah, he's definitely relying on his experience in in the research for this book to yeah. color 1984. Gotcha. That's basically his whole his whole career is kind of like that. So also while he writes Road to Wigan Pier, I think later he'll write um Burmese Days in 1934, which was based on his his time in Burma. He'll write two books that uh, aren't the most famous, or three books that aren't the most famous that are fiction, Clergyman's Daughter and Keep the Asperger's Flying. He did not like those two books. Like When he was on his will and testament, he was like, you don't have to reprint these. He was not... <laughs> He was not happy with it. And then he does Coming Up from Air for Air in 1939 that was kind of based on Down and Out in London and Paris. And for most of his career in the 30s, most people, I think, would say that his nonfiction work was far stronger than his fiction work. And at this time, you know, he's he's met this wonderful woman and he settled down with he married her finally. Yeah, so wrote, and then of right, course wrote, what he does is immediately settle down and live a quiet life writing books in the British countryside, right? 
is exactly not what happens to him, right? So he gets enough money to, to marry the woman after Road to Wigan Pier is kind of a minor hit. And again, you start to see more seeds of what's to come in, in Road to Wigan Pier, especially in the second half. He talks about the mounting threat of Hitler in, in Germany and how the British public are not paying attention to it. First off, not only does he have like a, he doesn't settle down and have a nice life, he gets like a home in the country and starts raising animals. And it's like one of the most uncomfortable homes you could possibly live in. He opens a little shop. He starts like raising animals for, for his own sustenance, which is, again, you start you were starting to see allusions to Animal Farm. Animal Farm, farm. yeah, Animal later. Farm. He's drawing on that later, sure. Yeah, he'll even write an essay about the proper way to milk a goat. <laughs> well, it's fairly quite funny if you get to listen if you get to read it or or listen to some listen to it it's it's really something so like even after he gets married he's kind of living the hard life even like out in the country and keep in mind he's fighting tuberculosis throughout this time so always remember his his health is is just not very good it really sounds like he's got a low level of depression as well yeah he he that's actually a good question he fluctuates you know, but it, he does deal with that. A low level is a good way to describe it. I don't think it dominates his life the way like it dominated other writers, mm-hmm. like 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 say Hemingway or something like that. Sure. But but it was it was there. Um, but so in thirty seven or thirty six, things just blow up, and that's quite literally quite literally in Spain, and that's where. The Orwell that we kind of know today is born in that cradle of the Spanish Civil War. What in the world caused him to decide to jaunt across the channel and join in the Spanish Civil War? Well, Burma, I get because it was a colony. Sure. I don't get this. What happened? So... This will be tough because the Spanish Civil War is a fairly complex, really bloody, really tragic event in early 20th century history that kind of gets overshadowed because it happens in between World War I and World War II and occurs like right before World War II happens. So it almost gets immediately overshadowed by the bloodbath in, in World War II. But... Basically, what happens is in 31, there's this like kind of referendum on the king. The Spanish people basically vote to become a republic. They become a republic. And as that's happening, you've got forces on the left who are radicals, socialists, classical liberals, communists, even though communists at the time were a fairly small part, trying to create a new secular Republic, and then you had kind of traditionalist forces on the right, monarchist Carlists, and then you had like the fascists kind of floating in the middle, not really sure where they were at the time, but eventually they'll s- slip over into the right. They were called the Falenque. And there's actually a coup in like 34 or 30, or 30, I think it's 34, there's a coup that doesn't go anywhere. And the Republic is actually able to hold it off. And in 36, there's another coup. And this time the army is prepared. There's this uprising in, I think, seven of the major cities. Five of them are actually repelled, most notably in Barcelona. 
but not enough to put down the whole coup. And it basically turns into this civil war. And eventually the civil war is led by a guy uh, or the the military side of the civil war is led by a guy named uh, Francisco Franco. Which we all know of as the dictator of Spain for a very long time. Up until the 70s. Yeah, and the effects of his reign of power are very much still... I mean, I went to Spain two summers ago, spent quite a bit of time in Madrid, in Santiago, and in Barcelona, and everything has been colored by his regime. Not all the bad, either. So So what's interesting... So this catches catches his attention, but he's a professed democratic socialist. What side does he come in on? So what's interesting about him is that his political views will oscillate and his labels will oscillate throughout his his life. In Road to Wigan Pier, he's very clear he's a socialist. So he's always placed himself clearly on the left, Mm -hmm. right? And he's always clearly a socialist. Now, he's already has some Soviet skepticism that you see in Road to Wigan Pier. He has like three chapters where he's like part of the problem with socialism or socialists. And one of them is he talks about how not all socialists have to bow their heads to Moscow. So he's that's already in his head. And we'll see that later. But he's on the left and he would have been part of the Republican side of the Spanish part of that national front, the, the socialists, the communists, the, the classical liberals, even the anarchists and just the kind of people who, who did not want monarchy. He would be, he was on that side. So when the nationalists rise up, he, he and so many people on the left in Europe saw that as a fascist movement. And it's a little more complex than that because the Falenque were a fairly small group amongst the factions that made up the nationalists, because they were, again, made up of traditional religious folks, the Carlists, the CEDA, conservative right-wing types, but still Republicans, and then monarchists, people who want to see the king restored. And that was kind of Franco's position. He was never a fascist member of the fascist party. When he develops the cabinet, cabinet had like two Falenque members who were like Falenque in name only mm-hmm. and then they got kicked out. Yep. So so there's some there's a lot of complexity going on there. Well we could spend like multiple podcasts unpacking the Spanish Civil War. But nevertheless, in Orwell's mind and many people on the left, it was pretty clear that the nationalists were basically fascists. This was a fascist military movement to take over a country. They had already taken over Italy. They had already taken over Germany. They had moved into the Rhineland and moved into Austria by that point. Mm-hmm. And to the left, who were going to fight fascism, this was just one step too many. This, this one they were not going to let happen. So, so many Americans and French and you know European people of, of the left volunteered to fight on the Republican side. And he would join a organization called the PUM, which in English translates to the Party of Marxist Unification. And he would show up uh, in December of 1936 as as a fighter. Uh, And this kind of comes from a tradition that goes all the way back to like 1820 when Greece rebels against the Ottoman Turks, a bunch of European intellectuals, and he wasn't the only one, like poets and intellectuals were all doing this, going to volunteer for the militias in Spain. 
on the Republican side. And that, that sounds like a terrible idea. I'm going to recruit a bunch of poets into my army. Right. It's one of those things you're like this. But this was really like before a time that we put this under that kind of scrutiny. And again, this is a tradition they're carrying over from the 1820s, where, again, European intellectuals were going to Greece to fight against the Turks for Greek independence. And that's what they kind of thought they were doing, is they were going to go, we're going to fight fascism. We pick up a rifle and we're going to go. And this is a huge turning point for him because he shows up in Barcelona, which by this point had repelled the, uh, the nationalist attack coup on them with an anarchist uprising. A full worker state basically appears in Catalonia. And he is, com Orwell is completely taken by this anarchist state. He almost, he completely falls in love with it. So he goes from being a socialist and wrote to Wigan Pierre to being almost a full on died in the wall anarchist. He doesn't join the kind of the, the anarchist unions, but he, he, again, he joins the PUM, but he just, he fall in the early chapters of Homage to Catalonia, his book about being there, he is fawning over the workers' party, uh, the workers' state of Barcelona and Catalonia, just fawning over it. So he gets shot in the throat. He does. I mean, he's on the front for a while and reading Homage to Catalonia, which a lot of his fans and biographers think is his best work, even, even when measured up to Animal Farm in 1984, because Orwell was never really a funny writer. The early chapters of Homage to Catalonia are really quite humorous. He talks about the first time he tries to shoot someone and his unit. Well, first he talks about how long it took him to get weaponry. And then when they finally do arrive at the front, how boring it is. And then when they they're so bored, they're going to shoot at any fascist they see, no matter how far away. And he takes a shot at one guy at 700 meters. And he, and he talks about, like, I really hope I came close enough to make him jump. Right. It's something like that. Or he has the story of. This artillery shell because they have crappy artillery that never explodes when it lands and he's convinced they're firing the same shell back and forth it just <laughs> doesn't explode right so he's he's not an intentionally funny writer but there's all this kind of you know unintentionally funny stuff he talks he's on the what's called the zaragoza front so for those who don't know catalonia barcelona is in what would if you're looking at a map of spain would be the southwest corner of Spain. It'd be right up against the Pyrenees on the French border. And Catalonia and is actually one of the few counties that still retains its own language separate, very separate from Spanish. It is, it's and that was that causes like a bit Spanish. of it causes a bit of problem for him because he's got he speaks English, French, and some Spanish. And there's other French, Belgium, other guys there. But then, like, their officers are Catalan, and they insist on speaking Catalan. So they can't, they don't understand that. I mean, it's a, they have, like, all these really kind of funny interactions with each other. I'm going to try and find it real quick from Homage to Catalonia. Oh, yeah, in, in Chapter 3, he has this great line in the opening paragraph. He goes, in trench warfare, there are five things. In trench warfare, five things are important. Firewood, food, tobacco candles and the enemy in winter on the zaragoza front they were important in that order with the enemy a bad last <laughs> and so throughout this entire book he talks the first half is him right, first three quarters of him living on the front and what it was like he 
saw very little action. He has another line in there somewhere where he says, it takes 3,000 shots to kill a man, and at this rate, it'll be 20 years before I kill my first fascist. Oh, good grief. So he sees very little action. He has, like, he describes one night attack that they make. Um, the hero of the book is a guy named George Cop, who is a good fr- is, a, is a friend of his, and, and a real hero, not just in the Spanish Civil War, but will join the French underground in World War II. He was um, Belgium. But like you said, he, he does get shot in the throat. Is he's, I think he's on the Zaragoza front, and he stands up to light a cigarette, and he's a tall dude. And, you know, one of the few times that the random bullets that whiz past them without coming anywhere near anyone actually hits him. And if this bullet had been one millimeter one way or one millimeter the other, we would have never gotten the George Orwell we would have known. He would have just been a minor footnote in socialist literature of the 30s. That would have just been the end of a footnote in military history of the famous poets and writers that got their asses shot during a war, something like that. But it passes straight through, and he survives it. He winds up going to a hospital, and of course, being a writer, he describes it in this great detail of what it's like being shot in the throat, and then what it's like being in these hospitals. And his wife is there, you know, in Spain. This is his long-suffering wife, Eileen, is, is you know, visiting no him kidding. in Spain. Yeah, she's in Barcelona during the war. But what's more interesting... Suffering is... You're not kidding. Good grief, lady. Yeah, but what's more interesting is in between him getting shot in the throat and him fighting on the fronts, he's in Barcelona during the May uprisings. And the May uprisings is when the kind of police force and the central government are trying to re-establish control of Catalan away from the workers who have armed themselves and collectivized everything. And it's kind of like spurned on by the communists and stuff like that. And he's there as part of it. Again, he doesn't see much action, but slowly you start to see the power of the anarchists get eroded away. And he's his militia, the Poom, are basically scapegoated for the uprisings. And this is where, again, you start to see another seed appear for 1984. And he spends, I think, chapter 11 of Homage to Catalonia just trying to set the record straight on how the newspapers, the, the, the communist newspapers and the major newspapers were just lying about what his militia did during the May uprisings. Huh. And how he was just infuriated about it. The whole chapter is him just taking excerpts from other newspapers and saying, I was there. I was at this location. None of this happened. We never had tanks. And he would be amazed on how we start to see the beginnings of doublespeak here, how in one sentence, the communist newspaper could talk about this foolish, poorly run, dirty militia that somehow almost toppled the government. He, and he's go, how can we be this goofy, poorly fed, poorly numbered unpopular militia but have a tank or sure. something to that effect how, how is this possible yeah. and that's what starts to plant the seed in his head the, the double speak and the news speak and the lying and the rewriting of history mm-hmm. it, it, this this hits him so hard and that's he'll talk about that later in life but the, the may uprisings is something you don't you don't want to skip over because i'm someone who thinks that london in 1984 
is basically a mirror of Barcelona in 36 and 37. Is is that's where he gets he's so he, he gets the descriptions of a totalitarian city so well as he saw it in Barcelona after he gets shot in the throat. Because remember, he comes back from leave while being on the front, uh, the Aragon front. He's in the May uprisings, 37. He goes back to the front, shot in the throat, then comes back to Barcelona as like walking wounded. And keep in mind, like he was still unhealthy, had you know bad lungs and all that. And this is where now he's basically a criminal in Barcelona and he's sleeping outside and he's hiding with his friends and his hotel room is sacked by Spanish secret police. And thank goodness that the Spaniards have, you know, a sense of chivalry. They didn't rustle his wife out of bed because had they lifted the mattress, they would have found the machine gun that she was hiding under there. Oh, my gosh. Things like that. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. That last part is kind of an escape story. And this really changes him. This this sets this these events in homage to Catalonia move him into the direction of the George Orwell we finally finally know. So I'm really of an opinion that if you want to understand, you know, where 1984 and Animal Farm come from, a good place to start is homage to Catalonia and his time in Spain. So as he's wrapping up his time in Spain, World War Two is kicking off. Germany so this- is rising up, but is it this? interaction with a poorly run media and a propaganda media that encourages him to join the BBC when he isn't able to join World War II? So, yes. So he gets out of Spain basically escaping over the Pyrenees into France. Um, and And he's so, like, annoyed about it because he can't look like a militiaman anymore. So he's gotta look like the privileged English traveler that he hates so much to be above suspicion. And so he's got to look as posh as he can so the, they don't stop him. And basically he escapes over the Pyrenees just trying to stay ahead of his arrest warrant that he knows is out there. And the Spanish Civil War ends, I think, in April of 39. And World War II doesn't start until September. So World War II starts in 39. And he immediately tries to enlist in the army and he is too freaking sick right they're just not taking him he's just too sick so he joins the home guard not to mention shot through the throat yeah he'd been shot through the throat. but he had recovered right you know he wasn't crippled or anything like that. it'll always affect his speaking from from there on in so he joins the home guard and of course being the guy that wants to pick the toughest thing he can do since he can't join the fighting he moves from the country to london which is During, literally the opposite of what everyone else is doing in World War II. Every sane person is trying to get out of London, and he goes to London to be there amongst the Blitz. So he sees the bombings firsthand. And so he, so basically he really wants to do his part. So uh, he joins the BBC and basically joins their propaganda wing. And his, his, his room was 101 while he was part huh. of the BBC. And no because... Kidding. Yeah, that was it. It was Room 101. And he could speak, while he was in Burma, he learned like three languages. And I think he could still speak Hindi. So he was part of the broadcasts, the BBC broadcasts into India. And they were all propaganda. And that was another thing he starts to learn is is just how propaganda, particularly wartime propaganda, gets done. And he does not like it. So he kind of 
resigns in 43 and um, becomes like this workaholic. But, you know, good, a good thing does happen. He, he and Eileen adopt a son in 44 uh, named Richard. So they adopt a, a kid, but she doesn't survive much longer, does she? No, she, she doesn't have kids. And the adopted son in 44, and he's very happy. He loves the kid. And Eileen is going to die in 1945. Orwell returns to reporting for the BBC. Is he uh, still the raising co- this child, or does someone else still, take it? Still raising the child. He leaves the kid with Eileen. And she goes to the hospital for what she thinks is going to be like this routine operation to remove some tumors. And it turns out she really had like uterine cancer or some form of cancer. And... She dies writing him a note, and, and, and a letter, I should say. And the letter survived. And I, and I don't remember it word for word, but she talks about how nice the, ho- the hospital room is and how like the sedatives they gave her are kicking in. And the, and the letter just kind of trails off, and people think she just kind of died right there. Wow, and, that's incredibly and, sad. Yeah. Um, and he, is, he just dives back into his work, and also the same year is where his first hit appears in Animal Farm 1945. And his wife is alive while he's writing it. And she is kind of instrumental in, in helping him kind of smooth out the edges. She's, I think, alive when it's released. I, I don't really quite remember. And, and that's that his book, first mega hit. That book is a lot more playful. It's clearly about a fairly heavy topic, but it's dealt with in a way that almost seems like a children's book. It, yes. I think I, I sat down and read it in like an hour and a half. It, it's yeah, really, you can read it in an evening. It's light. The topic itself is, I mean, there's some depth there, but if you just skim it, skim the surface of the novel, it's really, it's very light reading. It's very easy to read and it's not very long. So I can no, definitely I, see that influence. Yeah, and what's funny is the American publishers did not realize what they were reading. Like you said, if you if you don't know how deep it is, you can still enjoy it. But the American publishers are like, eh, you know, no one wants to read stuff about animals. They missed the <laughs> subtext completely. But in Britain, it was fair. The British audiences were it was very obvious, and the British Home Office or the Ministry of Information who in Hitchens' book, Why Oral Matters, points out the Minister of Information in Britain at the time was a Soviet agent, did what they, whatever they could to not let this book get published. It gets delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed because they did not want a book critical of the Soviet Union and the history of the Soviet Union released while the Soviet Union was an ally of the United Kingdom. They just did not. But Orwell is still hopping mad about what happened in Spain and the role the Soviet Union played in disgracing his militia in Spain and imprisoning a number of his friends. And he's very, 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 very critical of communism, Marxism as a whole. I mean, Animal Farm, much more than 1984, has almost... It's almost an allegory of what happened in with the Marxist and and Stalinists in I, I guess not Stalinists. So you've got Lenin, you've got Trotsky, all in Switzerland, kind of hanging out and building these communist ideals. And then they go back right. to Russia and a lot of stuff happens is pretty negative. 
but yeah, animal right. farm is almost a word for word allegory. You can you can almost like line up animals oh, with yeah. who they're supposed to be in real life. Yeah, you can line up the animals. You can almost line up the timeline, although it's a little it's a little messy. Uh, I think a lot of people think that the Bolshevik Revolution overthrew the Tsar. That wasn't the case. Um, the Tsar is overthrown in February, in the in the February Revolution of of 1917. The Bolshevik Revolution happens in October. Yes. And what's what's really interesting is that Lenin is in in Finland when the Tsar is overthrown. And Trotsky's in New York when it yes. happens, right? So they have to come back together and overthrow the provisional government to become to put the Bolsheviks in charge. So, and a lot of some people don't put those two together or don't see that when they, if you just read Animal Farm, that's not clear. And again, Orwell right. wasn't. I, I don't think was trying to make it perfect, but he was. I think really trying to smash the facade the Soviet Union had built amongst the left in Europe. So Orwell, very critical of colonialism early on. His criticisms of fascism are not as eloquent or didactic as his other criticisms of the Soviet Union later or colonialism earlier, kind of because he took it as a given that fascism sucked. You hear it in Road to Wigan Pier. And, if, and he doesn't even explain why fascism sucks in Homage to Catalonia. He's just like, you just pick up a rifle and shoot these guys. <laughs> he's really not, he's not, he does not expend much in the way of real estate of why he's doing this. It goes without saying. Just do yeah, it. it's really, that's really it. He kind of just like, uh, it's fascism, you go, you go fight them, right? But with, with Soviet communism, Bolshevism, he saw that the left of which he was a part in Europe, in Britain, was just, he, they were just giving the communists a pass. And he saw them as a clear existential threat because of what happened to his militia in Spain. And because of what he saw in Spain, he really wanted the European left to know about it and not to feel so cozy with Stalin or the Russians. And the European left, his people close to him, would give him a hard time for the rest of his life because of this. And he didn't seem to really hate on Lenin all that much either. Lenin, Trotsky seemed to kind of get a, not at first. I mean, at, at, at first he's pretty critical of them, but they get a pass towards the end when it's very clear in Animal Farm that Stalin or the stand-in for Stalin has taken over and is going to kill literally everyone. Yeah, he mentioned, he talks about Trotsky like passingly in Homage to Catalonia and you don't really get a clear sense of whether he liked him or not. There's just not really i mean he says his militia was not a trotskyist militia he kind of goes through the definitions of what a trotskyist is and never comes out and says i am or i am not so same thing with lenin he doesn't really give you a different but he's very clear he sees stalin as a problem well i think that stalin wasn't particularly communist was he he was an opportunist so that th- this is interesting. There's a new biography that just came out, and you caught me off guard with that question. And what's really interesting is I'll we'll try and dig it up in the show notes. But I saw an interview with the author, and what's interesting is when they finally dug into the papers post Stalin taking over, the one thing they were really really f- surprised at finding was that actually they were communists. They were Marxists. They really believed the crazy stuff that they were saying. 
No kidding. So Stalin, yeah. So what Stalin did was create a dictatorship within a dictatorship, mm-hmm. right? So, so Bolshevism within the within the Soviet Union was this one-party rule. So it's a dictatorship of one party, and Stalin created his dictatorship within that dictatorship. But he absolutely was a true believer. He was not a doofus, right? He was an intelligent guy. He was well-read. He oh, I a, never thought that he was unintelligent. I always thought that he just took opportun- the opportunity to rule. Yes, he did. He did. You, you can do both, right? And he did. He was incredibly ruthless and intelligent. And what made him better than, say, Trotsky was that he could organize. Mm-hmm. He could organize. And so while Trotsky would spend time believing in his own genius and oratory skills, Stalin was behind the scenes organizing his his rise to power. And he utterly outmaneuvers Trotsky, just completely. Oh, absolutely. All completely. the way up till the end. Yeah, just completely outman- you know, outmaneuvers him. So Orwell sees Stalin as this, this threat, and he's basically trying to tell the left in Europe, these guys are not your friends. Now, these typically, are Animal Farm and 1984 are taken now as manifestos for the right. Yeah, and that's really what's fascinating about this. Um, and again, I would reference Hitchens' book, Why Orwell Matters, is because Orwell was not a man of the right ever. If you just go through his life, he's not he's not someone uh, of the right. But people really did think that you know he was the John Birch Society published, I think, Animal Farm and 1984 for American audiences mm-hmm. because it was really used as this club to beat communism and rightfully so. I mean, it's one of those things where he was, even though he was coming from the left, and he was bludgeoning communism with it. And the right also didn't like, you could use it. Right? It worked. He, he was not making non-valid arguments. But um, he's asked about this, Orwell is, um, if 1984 is an attack on socialism in general or the left in general. And he, he's clearly, it's clearly not. He even, he makes a statement, and I can quote it. Uh, my recent novel is not intended as an attack on socialism or on the British Labour Party, of which I am a supporter, but as a show-up of the perversions to which a centralized economy is liable and which have already been partly realized in communist communism and fascism. The scene of the book is laid in Britain in order to emphasize that the English-speaking races are not innately better than anyone else and that totalitarianism if not fought against can triumph anywhere that's really what his his goal was um now there is these kind of weird contradictions within orwell he's not perfectly consistent so you sit there and go well he's 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 this rugged individualist and he's railing against centralized economies isn't that socialism isn't that communism like i mean like where where are you coming with this? And that talks that that goes to his kind of movement around the scale. So he's a socialist in in thirty six, almost a full on hardcore anarchist in in Spain. In one part in homage to Catalonia, he calls the Soviet government right wing. That's how far to the left he is at one point in 
his essays, The Lion and the Unicorn, this like multi-part essay he writes in the during the war, he kind of lays out his strategy and it's kind of like a light socialism that the government controls certain industries but not others. He actually reviews Hayek's Road to Serfdom for the Observer and will grant grants a few of Hayek's points saying that, yeah, centralized economies can lead to this problem. And you see that in 1984 a little bit. He almost has a Hayekian moment. One thing I like about him is he's really willing to grant the right and the left points so long as you are fighting totalitarianism. That was his enemy. He says that in his essay, Why I Write, that after Spain, every serious piece of work that I write is against totalitarianism. And he alludes that he's writing this book upcoming that's going to be his his hit against totalitarianism and that eventually becomes 1984 but he it's it's a it's a huge ordeal to do it because again after animal farm is a hit his wife dies he keeps the baby and now he's going to write his his he's going to write 1984 because he's had the idea since like 44 and he's but sick. He, is, he is really sick He's really sick. And, and so he isolates himself on this like little island in Scotland, off the coast of Scotland, to write this book. And this is where basically everything that we've talked about in his life, he scoops up and kind of, in, in my opinion, shoves into this book to, to complete it. And, and it's this real mental and physical ordeal because he'll have flare-ups of his TB while he's on the island of Jura. And had he had an hemorrhage, a serious hemorrhage while there, he probably would not have finished the book. So it, at this point, he's also, he's clearly depressed. And I think that that colors a lot of 1984, which it's pretty clear. It's, it's a very depressed book outside mm. of the content, which is about a world that is very gray and colorless. Mm -hmm. It also is about his frame of mind, I think, at this time. Mm -hmm. He's he's very depressed. And according to some of the stuff that you've told me, he's also reaching out to other women and kind of hoping for a companion in his last days. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he sends out multiple marriage proposals to women he knows at his publishing company or through his publishing company, basically saying, like, how would you like to be the widow of a literary man? He knows he's dying. By, by 46, 47, I think he's pretty clear in his mind he knows he's not going to live very much longer. His TB is getting really, really bad. He's very weak. Uh, he's living in kind of a working-class neighborhood in London. He's got to carry his son and Cole up multiple flights of steps. It's exhausting him. And he says, you, you're not going to have any kind of marriage requirements. I just want someone for my son, a companion, when I die, you're probably going to get a lot of money from my royalties, and you can edit unfinished work. He's rejected by all of them. All wow. of them. Before, before he leaves for Jura, he's rejected by everyone. They're just like, no. So he goes to Jura with Richard, his son, alone in this cold, rickety house on this island. And he spends the better chunk of a few years trying to just hammer out 1984 uh, and I, I really do believe that if you look back at all his previous work, nonfiction and fiction, he's using his life 
like you did with all his other stuff to feed into this book. And you just see it over and over again. Like the servants for O'Brien are East Asian. And I think a clear direct link to Burma. The prisoners from East Asia. Again, he describes mm-hmm. them in such detail. I think it's a direct link to Burma. The feeling that you can do wrong and, and have no control over yourself, the thought crimes, I think goes all the way back to such, such are the joys. The, the feeling of oppression and control being always watched, I think goes back to him being in Barcelona. The rewriting of history, which he spends a ton of real estate on in 1984. It's so shocking if you read the book carefully, he doesn't spend much time on surveillance, even though that's what it's remembered for. But it's, again, what he sees in Spain, the the allusions to the Russian Revolution, this the way the big brother looks and the way Goldstein looks. By the way, Trotsky's real name was Lev Bronstein. So the fact that the, the brotherhood villain is Goldstein, I think, is just too close <laughs> to be a coincidence in some cases. So he's just, again, just drawing all... Julia, the character Julia, was, I think, one of the women, based on one of the women that he proposed to, Sonia Brownell, or Brownell, I think is her name. And she's the one he did eventually marry. Yeah, after the book is released. I mean, they they get, so the book is released, and he, he is disappointed in the book. We have letters saying how he had this great idea, and the execution just didn't land. And I think he may have felt that way because he felt like he was rushing because he knew he was gonna die. And he also didn't have his wife to edit for him as she did Animal Farm. Right, right, that's true. I think that played a role in it too. So just a very different book. You have a, a man writing a book at the end of his life. Even the way the character looks, Winston looks at one point in the book, must have looked like him mm-hmm. towards the end of his life, the sickly, feeble person. I really wondered about that because the description of Winston does not match his actual age at all. No. So no, he's meant that, to be in his early 30s, I think, or late 20s. And he sounds, when I first read it, I assumed he was in his early 50s. Right. Yeah, I think, I had, had it in my notes. I think he's like 39 in something like that. I can't remember now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he Sonia Brannell eventually does say yes to the marriage proposal. And they get married in, at London College Hospital in his hospital bed. Like, he can't can't even sit up in the bed it was kind of a sad affair it's described as a fairly sad affair and he dies in january of 1950 and he's only 46 so a few months later yeah yeah Yeah. so he he doesn't really get a chance to enjoy it so jeffrey myron's biography uh orwell and it's called wintry conscience of a generation and that was part of it's it's a quote he lifted from v.s pritchett during his uh i guess obituary or death notice is what he referred to Orwell as the wintry conscience of a generation. So we've gone through Orwell's biography, and in another podcast we've talked about 1984 pretty much at length mm. as something we can wrap up with. How does Orwell, as a, as a person, not as an author, and certainly not through the lens of his books, is he a hero of libertarianism, the right, as he's so frequently portrayed to be? Mm-hmm. Or should we let go of him and let the left have him? And do they want him? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting when you think about his legacy. And I think of Orwell kind of the way I think of the director, Sam Fuller, is it's almost impossible to put the man in a category, right? But what I, what I really admire about him, and I've talked to libertarians about him, I've talked to liberals about him, and I think you have to just understand what he was most concerned about. And, and he says it in 
why I write. He says, I write against totalitarianism. And he says, for democratic socialism, as I understand it. And what I think is interesting about him is, is his consistency. And I, I, I like to say this every now and again, tyranny is bipartisan. It doesn't really matter if it's left or right. So Orwell clobbers tyranny of the right in colonialism and fascism. And he clobbers tyranny of the left in Bolshevism and Stalinism. You could see him if you agreed that tyranny was the problem and that individualism is what's important and controlling the individual, being sovereign over yourself is what's important. You could see how he could build bridges with a guy like Hayek and go, yeah, you know, Hayek is right in certain parts. He, he never like Orwell never liked uh, capitalism. He just never did. He never came around to that. But he could still go, I can see I can see where this capitalist is coming from. And he could build that bridge. And I think that's the one of the biggest legacies he has is that it doesn't matter where you are in the spectrum. The goal is fighting totalitarianism and tyranny. We can argue about all the other stuff later, but set your priorities straight. And, you know, and he would even rank those. Hitchens likes to say, he was right about three things, colonialism, fascism, and, and communism. And even, even as vociferous a critic he was of communism, he was, you know, he really did not like colonialism. And he would not use colonialism as an excuse to fight communism. He goes, first, stop, the, you know, end the colonies. And if they fall to communism, we'll worry about that later. Colon- you, you don't use that to supplant the other. Huh. You know, something like that. And Which I think pretty that's pretty forward thinking, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the lesson. So when someone on the right quotes Orwell and like someone on the left goes, well, Orwell is a socialist. That's not, that's not what's important. What's important is the content of what we're talking about. When someone on the left quotes Orwell, someone on the right goes, well, he, he you know, wrote Animal Farm 1984 and all this kind of stuff, anti-left books. It's like, no, no, you know, these were specific books directed at specific things. Uh, I think that's what, what's most important in that specific realm is that the target was totalitarianism, and it doesn't matter what spectrum you're on. That's what I get from it. The other thing is, if you really want to make a difference, it doesn't take that much effort. Think about all the things he did throughout the course of his life. Just going to Burma, making the conscious decision to go to Burma, making the conscious decision to live the life of a homeless person, making the conscious decision to go into the mines and understand the life of a miner, making the conscious decision to join the militia, And then to write about it and tell the truth. You know, he says this in Why I Write. When I sit down to write, and I'm not going to quote him exactly because it's not in front of me. I am not trying to, I don't think I'm going to make art. I'm going to try and correct a lie that I see as false. And that's where he always gets in trouble is because he's not lying to fill an agenda. He's trying to tell the truth. He told the truth about colonialism. He told the truth about fascism. He told the truth about communism. And whether you liked it or not, he was trying to tell the truth. And in his mind, in Wigan Pier, he was trying to tell the truth about capitalism. So even if you like capitalism, you don't have to agree with what he was saying, but he was trying to tell the truth as he saw it. That's the other lesson I think is really important to pull from him and why I think he's still relevant. So it turns out there's a lot more to Orwell than I ever thought. Yeah, me too. When I started this, I was like, whoa, this guy, especially because so many people like to quote him or invoke his name. Because when when Victor Pritchett called him the wintry conscience of a generation, I don't think it was an exaggeration because he put so much emphasis on telling the truth as he saw it. 
he is kind of seen as this figure of, of great moral authority. So, like you said, the left and the right really want to have that mantle, and they will use his name to bludgeon their opponents now, however they can. And sometimes it's warranted, and other times I think it's unfair, because I think it does take a fairly nuanced understanding of the man to really understand the things that he was saying in those in those works, because his life was so connected to him to those works. You you see almost all of his all of his written work is connected to his lived experience, even his fiction work, even when he goes off into these strange directions in Animal Form in 1984, completely breaking his pattern of going to this kind of children's folktale and then quasi-sci-fi. Uh, it's, it, it's still connected to him as a person and his experience. And that's, that's incredible and something that any author should aspire to because you, you write best about the things that you know. Yeah, and what's amazing is he had now has gotten this second life, right? One after the communist bloc fell, you know, that's why Hitchens would write why Orwell matters is aren't we done? This is a conversation I've or the enemies of Orwell have been beaten, right? Communism, the Bolsheviks are gone. No one likes Soviet communism, or there's the, maybe Antifa's the exception, but who knows? Uh, colonialism, for, for in its as Orwell understood it and as Orwell saw it and experienced it, gone. Fascism, certainly as he saw it and as as he experienced it, is gone. It, you can, you know, people would make an argument of, oh, the alt-right, but it's certainly not the same. Those two things are not the same. Did he matter? And what I think is interesting, and you might agree with this, is when you get a guy like Melville, right, Moby Dick, that was not successful when it came out, and then American Doughboys read it and go, Did you, have you read this? Look, look, look how much about us is in this. Right. But it's a gener multiple generations later refinding stuff mm -hmm. in the book that wasn't its necessarily its original intent. Something similar is happening to Orwell in, in specifically 1984, specifically 1984, is the younger generations, the post-Cold War generations are finding this book and going, seeing kind of the world they we're living in. And they're reading this and going, wait. He wasn't he wasn't all wrong. And that's when we go back to the earlier things is he wasn't really attacking someone specifically, even though he used a specific example. He was attacking an idea. Right. So that's why I say tyranny is bipartisan. It's right. It's, it doesn't matter. That's why 1904 has maintained its relevance is because he wasn't just talking about communism. He was talking about totalitarianism doesn't necessarily have they're kind of cliched. Right. They don't mm -hmm. really have an ideology. They have a format that they follow to obtain power. Yeah. Yeah. And so people start to see it. And, you know, the surveillance thing, you know, all that it stuff. Again today. Sure. And we're going to continue to face it. This is not something that dies out either. No. And that's the thing is, it is the, the thrust for power is one of those things that could ha happen anywhere and is any human being is vulnerable to. Yeah. And Orwell was just one of those guys. He wrote these books at the end of his life. And he was his timing was impeccable, combined with his honest portrayal of the world he saw. It basically created this book that just is gonna live on and and almost be a manual for. Hey, I think it was David Brin who said like, "Hey, 
science fiction is not trying to predict the future. It's trying to say, don't let this happen. And <laughs> that's what Orwell, I think, was really trying to say. And that's why I think he'll stay relevant. Yeah. And even though it gets misused, like, it, you know, people keep bringing up 1984, 1984, 1984. Read his essays. Politics in the English Language, Why I Write, Shooting an Elephant, You and the Atomic Bomb, his reviews of Mein Kampf, his reviews of Road to Serfdom, they're still fairly relevant. Mm-hmm. Still very, very relevant. Well, this has been a very productive conversation, <laughs> but if you like what we do, head on over to thereforeigeek.com to check out our old blog posts and podcasts. You can check us out on social media, Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and occasionally YouTube. So, once again, I'm Tracy. I'm the dude. And you've been listening to a special edition of Therefore I Geek.